0: Whilst I just get this computer plugged in, I wonder whether... Could we switch back to the um, Old Testament reading from the Book of Deuteronomy, one of the first five books of the Bible? And um, if we can switch back across to that. See, um, So, let's see. Yeah. So, um, there it is uh, uh, from the NIV, and it calls a Harvest, then celebrate the Festival of Weeks, um, which um, in... The version I've got here, it says, then celebrate their festival of harvest. So the festival of weeks and the festival of harvest were exactly the same thing. So I'd like you, you can talk, uh, turn, talk to someone about this or just do this on your own. From that definition of harvest, why haven't we got any cans of beans here do you know so normally when you go to a harvest sunday don't you You have loads of cans of beans a few cauliflowers you know kind of that kind of lined up but canned tomatoes all of that kind of stuff and a radish or two so why are we celebrating harvest with a blank front and no cans of beans think about it talk to someone about it uh, while i plug all this in right Okay, anybody got any idea why we've got no fruit and veg? And we've still called it our Harvest Sunday. Anybody got a bold idea? Because we forgot to announce it last week. Any improvement on that? Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so here's the thing. Let me read to you again Deuteronomy 16 uh, the, um, from here. It simply says this. Um, this is uh, God, Yahweh, speaking to his people. He says this, count off seven weeks from when you first begin to cut the grain at harvest time. Then celebrate the feast of harvest, or weeks, because it was seven weeks after They first cut the grain. That's why it became known as the festival of weeks, harvest, to honor the Lord God. Then it says this, bring him a voluntary offering in proportion to the blessings that you have received from him. Harvest had nothing to do with cans of tomatoes. It had nothing to do with cauliflowers. It had nothing to do with all the things that we've traditionally made it about. It has to do with only this. Bring to God voluntarily a proportion of the blessings you have received from him. So, in an agrarian society, which is what Israel was, where most people, 90% of the people lived off the land, most people were farmers, the thing to do when you were bringing to God voluntarily the things that he'd given to you. God's blessed you. Now bring to him voluntarily something that expresses your thanks. The thing to do was to bring your grain. To bring your lamb. But we live not in, um, not in Old Testament uh, an ancient society that was agrarian. Hands up anybody here who is a farmer. Hands up, anybody here who grows um, cauliflowers. We aren't agrarian. We don't grow cauliflowers. So to nip down the shop to buy a cauliflower and to stick it at the front actually skips what this is really all about. Harvest was always a recognition that our lives come from God and bringing him the best of what we do. So the church has got stuck on this. It's never got that way before, has it, on anything? But the church has got stuck because it's still bringing cans of beans or whatever in societies where no one works on the land. And in that way, it passes on to its children the view that harvest is really about the olden days when people did all this kind of stuff, and it's not. The principle articulated in the Bible is simply this. Bring to God the best of what you've got in recognition for all his goodness to us. And that's why we also read from Romans chapter 1. Mike also read that. And in Romans chapter 1 it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This wasn't a kind of move on. By the way, if you look through the New Testament for references to harvest festivals, you're going to be looking a long time without much fruit for your labor, to use an expression. And the reason is, harvest is set in the agrarian society... ...that Israel lived in in Old Testament times when Deuteronomy was written. When the New Testament gets written, when Paul writes, he's writing to cities. Already society is changing... And so Paul, if you like, replaces harvest with this. Therefore, he says to the Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Bring those to God. Now, this isn't a kind of liberalizing of what the Old Testament was about. Instead, it's driving back to the center of what Deuteronomy was always about. Deuteronomy was never about fruit and veg. It was about offering to God the very best of who we are all of the time. Here's this great quote from Tolkien from uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. Much that once was is lost, for none live who could remember it. Some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend, legend became myth. The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, the introduction to the whole story of the Hobbits, etc., etc., etc. Some of you will be fans of the films. Some of you will be bored by the films. But this is one of his introductory lines. And if you uh, watch the first of of the uh, the, the uh, three the trilogy of films, the Fellowship of the Ring, it actually begins with these words being voiced over: "Much that once was is lost, for none live who can remember it. Some things that should have not been lost." and not have been forgotten, were lost. History became legend, legend became myth. And so you see, as time passes, truth is lost. And as truth is lost, all we're left with is tradition. Jesus, of course, always came to break through tradition. He came to defy tradition and move us on. But the church has often been addicted, along with the rest of humanity, to deifying tradition. We've always had chairs here. The pulpit's always stood here. The piano's always been there. What do you mean you want the piano over there? What do you mean you want a guitar? Drums? Some of you would have lived through all of those things. But what is it today that we deified in our tradition? When the man we follow always comes to defy tradition and move us back to the truths that are so easily forgotten. We are looking at these five principles uh, through these five weeks. Hard to see, we're working on getting bigger and bolder all the time, but uh, we're going to present you in two weeks' time with a postcard, and on one side of the postcard is going to be written out our five values, and on the other side of the postcard there be this. And um, uh, last week, we looked at inclusion. We're going to look a little bit... Uh, so there it was. Last week, we looked at inclusion for all. And you see that outer ring says activities. We have five values. They are intimacy, involvement, inclusion, interdependence, and influence. And uh, on the back of the card you get in two weeks' time, we define what those mean a little bit more. Uh, intimacy with God... Involvement in society, inclusion of all, interdependence with each other, and influence through service. Not seeking power, but seeking to influence. That's uh, who uh, we are. So this week we're looking at involvement in society. And on that circle, all the activities are left blank. That's because these five values are the values of Oasis Church. They've always been our values. We didn't just dream them up last week. Um, those of you who've been part of the church for very long will know that we've always talked about our five eyes. And every now and then we look at our five eyes again explicitly, but implicitly they're always driving everything we do. And last week, um, Nath led us as we talked about, as we talked about intimacy with God. This week, we talk about involvement. But it's not that intimacy, you see, is a thing on itself, and now we're doing involvement, and next week we'll look at interdependence, and the week after we'll look at inclusion, etc. It's that they're part of a whole, together. Intimacy, without involvement, as I'm going to explain briefly, I hope, this morning, will always leave us bankrupt, crippled. It's like trying to walk on one leg. It's trying to see with one eye you will always be off balance unless our intimacy with God is matched by our involvement in society and these other characteristics that spring out of following Christ. But why is the activity bit left blank? The activity left is left blank because if these are our values and we're committed to them, the bit that each one of us has to do is work out what our activities are. When churches or any other institution comes to subscribe activities that you've got to be, you better be at the prayer meeting, you better give money, you better be uh, get involved in this, you ought to do that. What we do, and human beings do this, not just churches. We overregulate and we make rules, and then people feel bound by the rules. But what Old and New Testament are saying is, this isn't about rules. This is about some values at the core of who you are. And your task, my task, is to find ways of living out those activities, which is why we're gonna give you the postcard with the activities bit blank. For you to work out how, if these values matter to you, how do you live those out? How do I live them out in my life? Because if my life doesn't look like those values, then I haven't got those values. Or I should scrap those values and get some that look like my life. But if those values matter to me, then I've got to build some kind of activities into my life that reflect what I say I believe at core, or else I'm bankrupt. Does that make sense to everyone? So, on the front of the news sheet, our news sheet, you would have read that this week, we've, I've just come from there this morning, we've actually opened a crisis refugee centre. And you ought to know that that springs out of our values. Uh, Owen talked to us about um, Harvest for Hope. Because of, our, because of Harvest for Hope, remember last year when we got all those, um, those clothes and things together and put them in the shipping containers and then we got them delivered to Greece for, to uh, a warehouse for refugee camps around Greece, remember doing that? Loads of you got involved. Because of that, we then got into conversations and one of the conversations we got into was with the Home Office. And because of the work of Owen, who's just spoken to us, and Jess, and, um, and uh, the rest of that little Harvest for Hope team, and the conversation with other churches in the area, we decided that this year, instead of... Um, sending goods to Athens, which is where they went, to be dispensed, we would actually think about refugees as they arrive in this country. Our government has pledged that between now and 2020, we will take 20,000 refugees into this country and 300 unsupported children, unaccompanied children, children that are on their own, children that no one cares about, children that we've left in mud and squalor in Calais for a year children that we've left in a field like some of you have been to Greenbelt for a weekend and it's rained on you and you can't wait to get home well they've been in this for 15 months and nobody has actually given a monkeys actually not a monkeys so that's our task that's our job so what happened from there we began planning as you know how we are going to in the new year build um, a open, house, buy a house or more to um, house a Syrian family or more. So that's our goal. So when you run your supper party and you charge all your friends to get in, by the way, on harvestforhope.org, you can read about how to do that. And the supper party is a great idea, as Owen's just said to you. But actually, we can just give money. You know. We can fundraise in any way we like. I mean, you can run, walk, skip... Jump, do jump, do whatever you like to some cash, because as Owen said, we need nine thousand pounds to kit out one house. That's that's a coffee ta- coffee table, telly, carpets, curtains, bedding Um, etc etc kitchen stuff and we need your talents Uh, like um, Leanne's husband Paul he's a landscape gardener and he's pledged that he's going to landscape the garden that's a fantastic thing you might know a plumber or you know whatever so that's what we're doing and that's where we're headed and that's really important and we're going to house this family for at least five years and if you want to loan money into the system because we're going to buy the house by loaning money from you guys and you put your money in for five years, and we, and we buy the house. Let me say, we offer probably slightly better terms than Barclays or NatWest or anyone else at the moment who are not offering you anything, actually. So why not invest your money in this? You might get no interest back after five years, but at least you would have socially invested in changing someone's lives and bringing them hope. So that's what we're doing. But the funny thing is that that engaged us in a conversation with the Home Office. In fact, a very long extended conversation lasting about six or seven or eight months thus far. And we've been talking to the resettlement team. All of us that have been involved, Owen and the others, uh, we've been talking to the resettlement team. And then Friday, last Friday, um, I was speaking at something in Sweden, actually, as it happened, because I was speaking, speaking to Swedish church leaders who have already taken 156,000 refugees in one go and I was, I was talking to a bunch of uh, church leaders about 100 right across the spectrum um, you know Methodists to Pentecostals not trying to put them on opposite ends of the spectrum uh, Catholics all the rest about how we do joined up community engagement And whilst I was talking to them, I got a call from the Home Office. And it was late Friday afternoon, and um, I agreed to speak to the Home Office on Monday. They said they needed our help. And on Monday afternoon, I got to speak to them, and they said, "Could could we take on some kids from Calais? And they said, can you open a hostel on Friday? It was Monday afternoon can you open a hostel on Friday by noon, they said. I said, how many kids have come in? They said, we don't know. I said, what are their nationalities? I said, because they could be... Uh, from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, any of those war-torn countries. Which languages do they speak? Are they literate? Do they have SEN, uh, educational needs? Uh, Do they have any physical needs? Do they have any psychological needs? Are they boys or girls? What age are they? I asked all those questions, and the person on the uh, other end at the the Home Office said, don't know. I don't uh, she, She said, I don't know any of the answers to any of those questions. It's just, someone needs to house them will you so I said yes uh, but I said yes not knowing how but that I put to you is involvement in society, not this pussyfooting around and saying, oh, well, we get around to it someday and it's a bit stretching and we could be taking a risk. I've had all those conversations. If you want to have a conversation with me like that, I've had about 50 of them this week with people who said, well, it's a bit much. We're stretching ourselves. We might overdo it. It could be bad for our reputation, someone said to me, a Christian. They said it could be bad for our reputation. How bad can it be for your reputation that you listen to Jesus saying, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. Anyway, so it happens with the help of a whole... We, we decided that the whole of Oasis need to take this on because we've got to keep focused on harvest for hope. Like. Uh, you know, this is emergency accommodation. Kids arrive and they're going to spend a few weeks with us, sometimes just a few days. We're sorting out their lives, helping them, sorting out their health care, etc., etc. and then they will go to be fostered or what, whatever's going to happen. So, that, so we, we think that we keep this hostel open for at least six weeks, probably up to Christmas. Who knows what will happen? Um, but Harvest for Hope, in this community, we are building long-term care For five years or more, and we're going to integrate people and demonstrate love to them. That's our goal. So I don't care whether you crawl it instead of walk it, you know, but raise some money somehow so we can do this. You know, let's put our money where we're just singing about let us go, keep us from just singing. Do you remember singing that? Keep us just from, I always think that's ironic. You know, we all kind of sing, keep us just from singing. And God going, well, shut up then and go and do something. (laughs) But it's a great song, isn't it? Because it reminds us that we are to be involved. So that's what's happened. But the point is, the point is, had you not given to Harvest for Hope last year, Had you not given and had you not stood out there and had we not salted out all those goods in those shipping containers across from the farm, had we not done all that, had we not worked with Starbucks, had we not sent that stuff there, if we'd have listened to all the people who said, well, you can't do this and you can't do that, you certainly can't work with Starbucks and you can't do that, you know, had we not done all of that, actually what would have happened is this. We wouldn't have had the phone call because we wouldn't have actually been trusted, because this whole planet is filled with people who blab and who are really concerned about all sorts of things as long as it don't keep them up at night. Do, do, Do you see? So, our value is involvement in society. So what's happened is this thing has got open. It's in the East End it's not in the East End, it's in East London it's a safe house, it's a secret address we house 20 young people we got the whole thing going, sorted it out through the week. Um, Nine uh, boys arrived on Friday night we served them curry from the local restaurant that we managed to give us loads of fantastic curry actually I was there for it um, they stunk to high heaven, we got this huge lounge, it's a well-equipped um, centre we got hold of, huge lounge and it smelled like none of them they told us, that mostly Arabic speaking, none of them had had a shower for three weeks. They'd been awake for 36 hours, they'd been treated cruelly and oppressively and I suppose just bureaucratically by all the people that had brought them, uh, brought them here. We've used volunteers. Um, Di, who's the uh, principal of Johanna, she stepped in and she did the first shift. We got three shifts. You've got to be DBS uh, DBS to, uh, um, uh, to be able to be in charge. But you know, Bath Shah. Uh, did you meet Bashar the, um, a few Sundays ago? He's been here a couple of times. You know, he's the doctor from Aleppo, the, the refugee. Do you remember? Some of you met him who's now working in our school because he was bombed out of Aleppo and he came here as a refugee. And then we found him and we gave him a job in South Bank School. So he's a learning assistant there. You, you, you know that even though he's a pediatrician, he's serving as a learning assistant because he's trained in Arabic at medicine, which... Um, our government says doesn't work on people here, so, so, so he's a learning assistant instead. Anyway, the point is, um, the point is, um, I rang Bashar late last night, and I said to him because uh, I've been out here, uh, to East London this morning. Um, which is why this talk's a bit rambly because I haven't actually prepared it very much, uh, because I've been out there and I introduced Bath Shah to them and he's just sat and they all speak Arabic. And he's f- it, it, so I left him there and I left him there playing table tennis um, with some of the lads and they were beginning to get around the table, game going, you know. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I was talking to him and he said to me that they're all saying that this is the first time they've been warm or felt any security from anyone since they began their journey across the Mediterranean, since they were bombed out of their homes, since they watched their friends die at sea, since they walked across a continent, since they lived in the mud and squalor. Some of them have got trench foot, because you get trench foot if you live in mud. So that's wonderful, isn't it? But I'll tell you something. The point about this is this. There's someone else I've been talking to for a long time about spirituality and their life. I've sat and I've prayed with them and I've talked with them and um, quoted Bible verses to them and all sorts of things. But they have done one of the shifts out there. And they called me yesterday. Well, they sent me a text, actually after they'd finished their shift yesterday. And if I had my phone, I'd read it to you. It doesn't give away their identity. But the message simply says this. Steve, I've been talking to you for a long time, but I've just spent uh, 12 hours there yesterday with these young people. This person said to me, I feel spiritually alive. I feel like all that reflective stuff that we've done like pales into insignificance with what I've discovered about me and God as I've sat with these boys. Intimacy with God and involvement, they sit together. They're important together. There's a dualism that's driven intimacy and involvement apart. Here's a great quote from a guy called Andrew Walker. He's a theologian. He says, there is nothing more pathetic in religious life than witnessing the noisy and frenzied rattling of spiritual sabres that have long ceased to carry a cutting edge. The only spiritual reality, um, the only spiritual r- reality we are called to is down on earth. Spirituality that is divorced from engagement is a fake. There is no divorce between the inner and the outer. My inner journey and my outer journey are linked together. They are not separate from one another. My engagement in society, unless it's fueled by my relationship with God, will be hard and barren. You know the kind of person who says, I've been serving God through this church for the last 20 years and I'm really fed up with everyone. You know that. You've heard people like that. That's engagement without the, gentle, the gentleness of Jesus touching your soul. But equally, an involvement, an, an, an intimacy that sits itself in the corner and reflects, gets lost in an ethereal wonderland of nonsense. Our intimacy must be earth. And our earth must be fed by our walk with Christ or it will become a bitterness. This isn't a new thought, though. J.C. Ryle was the Archbishop of Canterbury um, a century ago. Look what J.C. Ryle says. When St. Paul says, come out and be separate, be different from people who are not followers of Christ. He did not mean that Christians ought to take no interest in anything on earth except religion. To neglect science, art, literature and politics, to read nothing which is not directly spiritual, to know nothing about what's going on among mankind and to never look at a newspaper, to care nothing about the government of one's own country and to be utterly indifferent to the persons who guide its councils and make its laws. All this may seem very right and proper in the eyes of some people. But I take leave to think that it is an idle, selfish neglect of duty, and you could add, of Christian spirituality. So this is me. That which we claim to be aware of in our souls must become visible before it's credible. Otherwise our actions... Likewise, our actions need to spring from the depths of our spirit if they're to be of substance and significance. Intimacy without involvement is just a shallow thrashing round and noisiness or silence. It's a dream. Involvement without intimacy in the end is barren and cannot bring personal transformation so involvement in society what activities what are you going to get involved in what are you going to do what are you going to give because to not give means we're locked in ourselves perhaps when we produce this um, uh, this postcard for you in two weeks time for me as well Perhaps we're right over it, the verses we keep using. Jerry referred to these last week. Nathan referred to them. You would have heard me refer to them a lot. Jesus said, there are two great principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two great principles hangs everything else. Everything else is just commentary on this, how to do it. Love God love your neighbour. The two things fit together and almost always must. What activities do you engage with through a week that leave you space to listen to God? What activities do you engage with through the week that leave you space to get involved and earthed? And even in saying it like that, I kind of pull them apart. There are people who will tell you that the only way to find intimacy is to sit in a quiet corner and reflect. Actually, you can find intimacy through your involvement. It's in the middle of the service and the agony and the sweat and the tiredness that you find that intimacy. It's not, I do this, then I do that. It's as we do both that we discover a wholeness that Christ leads us into. There was a years ago. I went to America uh, when I was younger, and there was a Bible college uh, that I didn't go to. It's in Texas. This Bible college. I hope they've take, t- taken this down. And what happened in used to happen in America. It still does sometimes. Is that Christian parents send their Christian kids to a Christian college because they're afraid they might get contaminated if they hang around with the wrong type of people. You know that thing? And I actually went there in Texas, and uh, in the foyer of this Christian Bible college, it it was their publicity for that year. It said, it told you the name of the Bible college. This was a leaflet aimed at parents who might send their kids there the next year. And it actually had the name of the Bible college, Texas, and the strap line underneath in this brochure was... 50 miles from the nearest sin. That's <laughs> honestly what it said. 50 miles, it was pretty remote out there, you know. I mean, if you're looking for life, Texas ain't the place to find it. But um, 50 miles from the nearest sin. Actually, can you see how dualistic all that is? Intimacy and involvement with Christ is what we're called to.